The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Who's Rourke? What system are they talking about and what test? Don't forget the vote. We should get our hands on every available record of every vote taken by Harrington's committee over the past six months. Already on it. Gotta be something big. Congressmen do not sell out for less than big. I ran Rourke, name and picture, through every program the Daily Planet has access to. The man's a ghost. What about Apocalypse Consulting? No bank accounts or transactions I can trace. I mean, Apocalypse moved in a couple of months ago, paid off a five-year lease on the offices in advance. Hmm, business must be good. What business? That is Rourke, international arms dealer, electronic weapons system analyst, entrepreneur, general bad guy, last known base of operations, Beirut. How did Where you did find you get that? that? Sources, boys and girls, sources. Lifeblood of journalism. People magazine. Here, give me that. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, October 11th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Thank God that there is such a thing as the internet, because if there was no such thing, we would not know what was going on in the news these days. But today I'm more interested in the backdrop of all of these events, and in particular the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court appointment, and of course the environment in which all this is being discussed and conducted. As soon as I remind you that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. That's why we do this for you. Now here we are, we're facing a near intellectual, moral, and ethical collapse of the mainstream media, quite frankly. I'm disgusted with them. I, for one, am so thankful that the internet came along with it did. Otherwise, we would be in the dark. Now what's great about today is that the discussions and contrasts of opinion that are now available online, that is a game changer, particularly for those on the right who are now deprived of any really meaningful outlet in mainstream media, and who online, I am pleased to report, have been garnering huge audiences and essentially are moving in the right direction in terms of the ideas that I hear discussed. Now I'd like to share a few of those discussions with you today. Not only to offer evidence that some of the right ideas are actually beginning to surface in the mainstream discussion, but to illustrate how these ideas manifest themselves in a real concrete way. Over the balance of our show today, we'll be hearing from several online bloggers and commentators, including Dinesh D'Souza, Gad Saad, Owen Benjamin, Ben Shapiro, on issues involving white privilege, sexual inequality, hashtag MeTooFascism, the Supreme Court appointment of Brett Kavanaugh, and, oh my lord, worse, Jordan Peterson's finally jumping off the philosophical cliff with his very ill-considered tweet about Brett Kavanaugh's appointment. If you really want to know what matters when it comes to the news, 
It's not the news itself per se, because all news events come and go with the speed of the event itself. What always matters is what people think about the news, their opinions, and how that will affect their future decisions in life. So thankfully, we no longer have to depend upon a media that has been ever increasingly exposed as not the fourth estate we had come to rely on. And more than the news, we can now, at the click of a button, access a steady diet of what people do think about the news and world events, which opens a portal not only to the news but to the ideas of other people that may very well end up affecting your own life and your own choices in that life, more than the news itself. Remember, the news that eventually shapes the record of mankind's history is always a consequence of the prevalent thoughts and philosophy of the times. So get ready to hold on to your hats as we kick off today's discussion with a very significant moral and ethical issue, one that strikes at the very heart of almost all leftist philosophy and that concerns the very moral premise that was illustrated by the real-life news story I'll be bringing to your attention when we return. I never thought I'd ever get to see such a literal example of it. Now, from a December 10th, 2015 public discussion held at Amherst College and featuring the awesome Dinesh D'Souza confronting a freshman college student about that student's virtue signaling about his own white privilege. This one's a keeper, I gotta tell you. As lengthy as the following exchange is as we've presented it here, the original was much longer. I've reduced the conversation to the essential intelligible arguments that surfaced. And by the way, this is a conversation that really should never have even been possible. Were it not for the acceptance of collectivist irrationality, some of the weird things we'll even talk about, the entire premise of the discussion was a bit insane, if you ask me. See if you can guess why I would say that as we all listen in to this. When I think of your example about an individual who works as a janitor and sees people dining in a beautiful cafe walking home from work, I, I want to ask you, do you think any of that indignation, given certain circumstances, might actually be justified simply because there have been systematic blocks in people's way throughout American history, not ending with slavery, not ending with the Jim Crow laws, uh, not ending, some would say even today, we still have housing discrimination. All of which is to say, um, you found that during the Cold War era, there was a massive boom in uh, the, the white middle class's prosperity, and you just didn't have that among African Americans, not because they weren't meritorious, but because they were discriminated against. So, let me ask, let, let, you know, we're, in a, we're in, a, in a very smart college, it's worth pursuing a discussion on these points. So there are Americans whose present benefits are due to past advantage. By the way, this past advantage, which is often assumed to continue with the white man, actually goes all the way back to the beginning. The American Indians who were here first, right, had a huge advantage. We presume that they owned the whole country. Now, how do you, by the way, let's pause for a moment. How do you get to own a country? If, if you have Cain and Abel, and Abel is a shepherd, and Cain is a farmer, and Cain says, okay, I'm not going to put a fence around the whole world. I own it, because I'm the only guy here. You're a shepherd. And my descendants will now inherit the earth, and anybody who shows up is a usurper. Rousseau says that the first guy who puts up a fence and claims he owns something is a, is a con man. So the American Indians came, 
They happened to be first. They came in a bunch of tribes. The Navajos who got the land took it from the Hopi or the Pueblo. Their law of the jungle was conquest. That's how they got the land. There's a big fight about the Black Hills that I cover in the film. The, the, the Sioux who got the Black Hills took it from the Cheyenne. So when we say, oh, give us the land back, are you going to turn around and give it back to the Cheyenne? Oh, no. It's ours. Really? How come you own it forever now? So what I'm getting at here is history is very complicated. Let me give you an example of India so we can look at this at the level of theory. Okay? India was invaded by the British and earlier by the Afghans and the Persians and the Mongols. So you have all these successive invasions. Right? Are you actually saying that you believe in a rule of social justice today that says globally, let's look at this as a, as a global rule of justice, I'm going to figure out whose ancestors did what to whom and I'm going to return goods that were illicitly taken from the beginning to the people who had it originally. Do you believe that that's a viable way to organize our society? Do you believe, if I can ask you a direct question, that you are the beneficiary of white privilege here at Amherst? I, I yes do. Or no? Well, yeah, and I'll, pause. I'll, okay. Uh, well. If you are, <laughs> if you are, can I ask you a further question? Oh, okay, yeah, but I, I, I don't just say it in a sort. I, I don't say it in a self-flagellating and self-aggrandizing way. Hold on. Okay, I, go on. You know, I, I really try not to. I'm simply saying that because you asked me. Really, I, I view the recognition of one's privilege as an impetus to change things. So I, I don't just say I have white privilege. I try to help those who have not benefited from really? such privilege. Really? How? I, hold on, hold on. Let, let's pursue this for a moment. Sure. You say, let's this is actually very important because there's, okay. there's a psychology here, sure. right? Well, you see, here's, I'm going to answer your question, but I, and I'm really not trying to attack you. I'm not trying to be provocative. I just find that often, I think the essence of much of this discourse surrounds, uh, surrounds hypocrisy. And you're trying to, maybe you're trying to demonstrate that I'm a hypocrite. I, I say I benefit from white privilege, yet I don't actually do anything. But I was a tutor for people who tended to be low income when I was in high school. Um, I suppose that, that would be one, one direct answer to your question because oftentimes disparate educational opportunities are grounded in disparate economic systems or systems that produce disparate economic outcomes. So that's okay. one way that I would combat it on an individual level. All right. Here's what I'm getting with this, okay? One of the benefits of a good education of reading people like Nietzsche is you begin to understand how deep the human desire is to, for moral self-exculpation. Moral self-exculpation. Now, you say, and I didn't say this, you said this, I'm a beneficiary of illicit white privilege. Okay? Illicit? Well, isn't all white privilege illicit? Ill is it deserved? Well, in this, I mean, in this current system, there is legality. I mean, that... Illicit means immoral. Okay. Then, immoral white okay. privilege. Yeah. Okay. So then if I were to say to you, there are surely many deserving minorities who would like to come to Amherst but have the inherited disadvantage of American history. Therefore, since you are an acknowledged beneficiary of illicit privilege, would you be willing to step aside voluntarily, putting your own moral mouth where your 
uh, self-proclaimed virtue is and give your seat, your seat, not my seat. I realize you may be super generous with other people's advantages and favor affirmative action so other white kids who apply to Amherst are turned away to open spaces for minorities. But I'm not talking about you acting out your virtue on them. I'm talking about you acting out your virtue on you. Mm -hmm. Are you willing to give up your illicit seat that you don't deserve here at Amherst to make room for a disadvantaged minority, yes or no? Okay, well, let me start here. I don't know how you got on the topic of affirmative action. By following I, the logic of I, your... No, no, I, I never said specifically that I think that race-based affirmative action is the best way to rectify um, the systems of injustice that... Have, why I'm don't sorry? you practice it by stepping out? And, and why don't you go to the registrar tomorrow and tell him you want to withdraw from Amherst? Are you listening to what he just said? Get off. Yeah. I'm listening. Go ahead. Okay, well, I mean, look, I, I'm only continuing to engage because you continue to engage with me, and I, I do want to hear other people's questions. But in response to that, again, what you're trying to demonstrate is that everyone's hypocritical. As someone once said that we're all, we're all dirty up to our arms, right? The fact is that I believe everyone in this room is hypocritical to some degree, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for a more just and equitable system entirely. At the same time, I think everyone needs to survive and that we ex we understand that we exist in an imperfect system and that we have to conduct our business in such a way as to not only adhere to our moral standards, but to the standards imposed upon us by the system in which we live. And I, I think that we have to be generous to people in their efforts to not be hypocritical and then do their best. But I don't think that we should totally throw away the idea that we shouldn't have those standards at all. The, the core of the American system, this will actually answers your question directly, is that how do, what do we do about the conquest ethic of the past? And here there are two options. There are two options. One option is we establish equal rights under the law. That was the solution of the civil rights movement, that we have had race-based discrimination, we've had racial hierarchy. Let's stop. Let's treat people according to the color of this, according to the content of their character. Equal rights under the law. <laughs> Equal rights under the law. The other option, which you're defending, is you could essentially call it, let's correct for history. Let's correct for history. Let's try to find out who are the people in possession of stolen goods, and let's return it. Now, the first thing I'm trying to say is, this is a hugely controversial principle because it actually involves wrecking the freedom of a free society. You basically have to, to put it frankly, if we were to carry that out, go into people's homes and take their stuff. Take their furniture, take their cars. You don't seem to have even the guts to do that. You don't have the moral self-confidence to do it yourself. It may be, if I am advocating a rule of social justice and I'm advocating it for the whole society, before I persuade everybody else, let's say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I believe everybody should give 10% of their wealth to help the poor. And I go, you know what? There, the Bible says this, the Bible says that everybody should give 10% of their wealth to help the poor. And somebody says, Dinesh, are you giving 10% of your wealth? And I'm like, actually no, but I did do some tutoring. 
and you go, wait a minute, aren't you advocating? Aren't you saying that there is a moral duty to do this? Why don't you do it? Before you convince us, you do it. And you're like, I don't think I should do it because society is extremely complex and I don't think I should do it unless everybody else does it. No. Either you believe in it and you do it. Once you've done it, you might impress us. And then you might convince the rest of us that our wealth is also ill-gotten. But you can't do it. And I'm not trying to indict everybody of hypocrisy. Only you. Because, because you're, the one, you're the one who said, I'm the beneficiary of illicit privilege. So you're a really good starting point. Because I'm asking, if you're in possession of stolen goods, why aren't you willing to return them? So that's why fundamentally I see your charity. You know, during the Civil War there was a guy who goes, I'm very happy to give, I've given three cousins to the war and I'm ready to sacrifice my wife's brother. <laughs> that's basically your ethics. You're willing to have social justice if other people pay, but you're not willing to pay. So that's the problem. And that's the problem with the progressivism that marches behind social justice while protecting its own privileges. You know how you said, we all have to survive. Really? You have to be at Amherst to survive? You don't have to be at Amherst to survive. You have to be at Amherst to benefit. You have to be at Amherst because you're getting opportunities at this college that many other people are not getting. So if you say you believe in equal opportunity, you're a hypocrite. Because you are taking advantage of opportunities unavailable to others. But for you, this hypocrisy is fully justified because you are militating on behalf of the poor. But if, it's, if, if you are against privilege, this college is privilege. So there's a glaring hypocrisy and you will never turn your moral mirror on yourself to say, what am I doing about it? That's my point. For you, society should act before you do to enforce your moral code. Wow, we need to hear a lot more of that kind of moral judgment. You know, Ayn Rand used to always say, always pronounce moral judgment when it is appropriate to do so, and it certainly was in this case. By pronouncing moral judgment, you are defining what is moral and what is not moral. So let's be clear about just what those immoralities are. First, there's the immorality of even using the term white privilege. I mean, the fact that the word white privilege is even being used in common language should be offensive to everyone. White privilege is the left's way of saying Western values. You know, freedom, responsibility, individual rights. And now the term has been turned into a racist concept by racists. That term white privilege is so offensive to me that every time I hear it, it's exactly the same thing to me as hearing the N-word constantly yelled at me. It is so racist as to defy any reason as to why any non-racist would ever use it. The people who use it, irrespective of culture, creed, or skin color, are all completely racist in doing so. Shame on you all if you're using that term. And here's the kicker. It's not white people that they are being racist towards in using that very term, but they're being racist towards the very so-called minority groups that they're virtue signaling about. You know, inherent in that very term is a psychological assessment that non-white people are somehow inferior to whites and that in order to make them equitable, some form of new political system is required. You know, a whole political system. I mean, this is so despicable, it's hard to find words, and people still aren't being taught why this is so wrong. Have we learned nothing from history? 
But why should we be surprised? The left is a collectivist notion to begin with, so all humans are grouped into meaningless collectives, but very politically useful collectives, from skin color to economic status or class, you name it. Individuals don't exist, especially if they have differing skin colors or other quote-unquote visible minority characteristics. Every racial group is a minority relative to some other racial group, not just whites for heaven's sakes, and it's all dependent on the relative numbers and populations within a predefined jurisdiction that determines the minority or majority status of someone, you would think. But no, when it comes to white privilege, the majority is always whites, no matter the number. Again, remember white privilege is the left's code word for Western civilization, which did indeed create a privileged environment for everyone so privileged to share in the benefits of individual freedom. That privilege was passed on to us by our own ancestors, and it is our responsibility in this generation to make sure that that privilege is also preserved for future generations. There is no greater privilege or benefit in this life than individual freedom. But to the left, the term benefit is always about money. Did you notice that? Everything he said. Never to freedom. And it's always about other people's money. Money that is never seen by anyone on the left to have ever been rightfully earned and which rightly belongs to no one else but the person who expended the effort or applied the knowledge necessary to earn it. But that is always seen as being the consequence of a privilege. They're insane. They, don't, they do not want to acknowledge the actual process of wealth creation. They don't understand it. They don't want to know because that means that they have to know other things. It is the very process of wealth creation that completely escapes the ability of those on the left to grasp. To the point of embarrassment. I mean, how can anyone really be that stupid or immoral? That's your only two choices. And then go out and publicly insist that their stupidity be foisted on the knowledgeable and the moral. You know, that's just unconscionable to me. Which brings us, believe it or not, to that very same philosophical discussion we had last week. That there's no such thing as non-existence. That we are indeed dealing with a universe of infinite regress. And not only a universe without a first cause, but a universe without anything we could call a cause at all. First, second, third, or fourth. Unless you begin in the present by first defining what you are referring to in determining its cause. You can't talk about cause until you start in the present. And that's the very phenomenon and process that was being described by Dinesh D'Souza in bringing up that other subject the left is utterly ignorant of, and that's called history. In the philosophy terms that we discussed last week, here's what D'Souza was actually saying. He was saying that the past has been determined. It cannot be changed or altered. And he gave a very human example of that principle. Not one necessitating the logic of some form of infinite regress, but social historical regress, where the Sioux defeated the Cheyenne and the British, you know, invaded India, and then the Afghans before them, the Persians and Mongols, etc., and so forth, going back as far as any possible historical record might reveal to us. That's kind of uh, an infinite regress on a very small scale, isn't it? And I remember, in fact, personally bringing up the fact of some North American Aboriginal tribes conquering other tribes, as well as their past nomadic migration from place to place, 
When I spoke at an official federal government committee I was invited to address back in the 90s, and boy was I given an earful about how offensive and unacceptable it was to ever suggest that aboriginals emigrated, immigrated, or migrated from anywhere to anywhere. No way. Not allowed to be talked about. We do not acknowledge that. And that was an eye-opener and a mind-closer to the reality of history if you're counting on the government to write that history. We see it continuing today in Canada. It's horrible. Then there's the sheer stupidity of it all. I mean the sheer stupidity of it all. I mean the whole idea on which leftist greed is based is utterly irrational. and It's impossible on its face. It's so nutty, it's fruitcake. The very notion of what that freshman was talking about, I mean, that's no different than someone coming up to you and insisting you flap your arms fast enough to attain escape velocity from planet Earth, because that's pretty much where he was in suggesting what he did. The entire premise of the conversation was absolutely stupid. Think about what's being suggested. And to be fair to the freshman, he did in passing acknowledge the quote-unquote difficulty of this, but dismissed it as a minor one, and, and I didn't include that comment in the edited excerpt we played earlier. But that concern, the quote-unquote difficulty, involved in tracing who owned what in history and when, going into the past to try to correct history, as if such a thing is even possible in any way except on a fantasy show like The Twilight Zone. That's how detached from reality the question asked by the freshman was. They're dead, Jim. They're all dead. I mean, all the people in the past no longer exist. Even their countries no longer exist. Their cultures no longer exist. Their wealth no longer exists. Wealth and its measure of value changes from microsecond to microsecond, for heaven's sakes. The poorest person today in North America lives better than the royals of the past who didn't even have running water or toilets to pee and poo in, for heaven's sakes. Wow. Mankind escaped from that misery with the discovery of freedom and capitalism. For anyone who's looking for, you know, an ultimate cause of something. But the idea of trying to identify today's quote-unquote privileged humans and force them to redistribute their money to some non-existent, non-definable entity of some non-existent, distant, long, or regressive past is beyond lunacy. I can't even find the words to express this to you. Anyone even suggesting such a thing hasn't even spent a split second thinking it through. Completely insane. So who or what do you suppose would be the beneficiary of all the money that that freshman advocates be stolen from those of us who are alive and living in the present? <laughs> Guess. Of course, the state. The government. Back to the old redistributed wealth confiscation scheme. Politics as usual. More injustice, more inequity, and what is called identity politics. Identity politics is just another one of those terms that should be considered no different than the N-word. Identity politics means racist politics, plain and simple. Not contestable. It's racist. And of course there's a hypocrisy of the whole thing. The freshman we just heard insisted that D'Souza was trying to accuse him of hypocrisy. But you know, D'Souza didn't have to demonstrate that freshman's hypocrisy. He was doing that himself, loud and clear. And the Sousa was totally right. He properly singled him out as being the sole hypocrite in the crowd because he admitted 
that he was one, that he was, you know, this, this, this white privileged person, and he's not going to follow through on his own stated morality. And what does he do instead of, he wants to bring everybody down in the crowd to his unprincipled level of thinking. Outrageous. It would never have occurred to him that there are many people who are not hypocritical when practicing their morality. They do exist, you know. But that's outside his thought process. I know people like that, lots of them, and they don't necessarily agree with me. So if your philosophy, quote-unquote, as such, requires you to be a hypocrite, then one of two things needs changing. Either you practice what you preach, or you change your way of thinking so as to reflect and not oppose the reality you've encountered. That means letting go of this moral self-righteousness, which is often the only thing that motivates such people. That's why they're there. They don't understand anything else. It's all about them. Now, D'Souza was encouraging the freshman to follow through on his stated moral premise, but don't think for a minute that he was doing that because he thought that anything good might arise from such an act of altruistic self-sacrifice. So what do you suppose might happen if somebody actually did do what D'Souza suggested? To step aside for some disadvantaged by white privilege minority. Well, here it comes. Believe it or not, some moron here in London, Ontario, actually did do that in a despicable act of virtue signaling that turned out to be, though most might disagree with me, to be the most immoral act that has harmed a great many people in numerous ways that I've ever seen trumpeted on the front page of a newspaper. Headline, get this, it actually happened. Candidate quits in favor of female rival appeared in October 4th, London Free Press, written by Megan Stacy, with the subheading, Rod Morley said events in the U.S. inspired him to do something about gender power imbalance. Wow. Listen to this. Quote, A wide-open race in Ward 13 shrunk Wednesday as Rod Morley dropped out to endorse Ariel Kayabaga, the only woman running. The 27-year-old Kayabaga was visibly shocked by the announcement which Morley made during the opening statements of award debate at Wolf Performance Hall. I have reminded you why my presence on this stage is unusual, but a good move for London, an emotional Kayabaga said during her opening statement, seconds after Morley announced his move and left the stage. Morley said he wanted to play a part in building a more equitable political system. <laughs> right, right out of the playbook, that's exactly what the freshman was saying. Quote, the stark image of Christine Blasley Ford facing off against an older all-male panel of Republicans as she testified against Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, helped inspire his decision, Morley said. I've heard of many women who have gone through more than they ever should have. The power balance is wrong right now. I want to do something about that, he said. Seven candidates remain in the hunt for the seat left open by one-term councillor Tanya Park, who is running for mayor. Kayabaga, who came to London as a refugee, is the lone woman and only visible minority candidate running in Ward 13. She told the crowd about the ways London has shaped her life. The city has taught me English and given me a passion for politics, she said. I also care about building a city where my son Noah can live, work, and feel comfortable. 
All candidates spoke about diversity at several points during the 90-minute debate, answering questions about indigenous development, gender-based violence, and community inclusion, end quote. Well, if after having heard both Dinesh D'Souza and the content of the London Free Press report, you can't connect the dots between those two events, well, allow me to be your guide. Look, the paper reports that Kayabaga was visibly shocked, but I know that if that had happened to me, if some other candidate stepped down on my behalf for the reasons cited here, I would have been profoundly embarrassed and humiliated. I'm sorry. Are you kidding me? That was not a very nice thing to do. And if you really did it for the reasons cited, then you should have done it privately, not announced it on a political stage and then withdrawn from the election without presenting us with your immoral virtue signaling. We didn't need that. That was both obscene and offensive. But of course, in today's intellectual climate of racism, sexism, and every groupism there, there is except the individual, insults and moral condescension of this sort help to mold the victim culture of entitlement by the left. You know, quote, Morley said he wanted to play a part in building a more equitable political system and talked about the whole Ford thing and everything to do with Trump and all that, you know. Think about that for a minute. What an insult to Londoners. This wacko has made his decision directly affecting local municipal politics in London on the evil and false accusations of the left against Brett Kavanaugh. Have you ever heard of anything more stupid than that? It is so false and contrived that all I can say with any respect to Mr. Morley is, shame on you, sir. It's very unlikely that anyone will do to Morley what D'Souza did to the freshman who merely suggested doing what Morley did. Look at the moral and intellectual vacuum in which this entire ward election is being discussed. Diversity, indigenous development, gender-based violence, and community inclusion. Beyond basic costs of policing, these are not municipal issues. We pay property taxes for municipal government, and the ownership of anyone's home should never be dependent upon any sort of fascist and racist policies of left-wing politicians. Even more glaring is, is Morley's BS about how the power balance is wrong right now, reflecting a sexist bias in favor of women, when in fact the real documentable power balance between men and women is highly in favor of the women, but nobody cares about that. Even more glaring, given the supposed power imbalance, is that former counselor for that same ward, Tanya Park, was a woman an extreme socialist from everything I've heard about her, and that she vacated her seat voluntarily not to give it up for some other disadvantaged individual, I mean, so disadvantaged that they have the time to run for office, but to run for mayor of the city of London, which itself has had you know, a long history of passing the threshold of having women mayors in the past. But all this reality doesn't matter to the left. What matters is their virtue signaling. Isn't that so clear? A signal that when translated means that there's no virtue to be found here, <laughs> but something more sinister. So, on this side of our upcoming bumper, Gad Sad wraps up the discussion on sex inequity, which was raised by Morley, citing statistics from the university environment in which he works. That commentary is taken from Just Right's own YouTube archive, specifically from our own recorded presentation of GADSAD that we made last May at Western University in London, Ontario. On the returning side of the bumper, 
It's Gad Sad again, this time from his own personal commentary of October 6th, and immediately following Gad, we hear from Owen Benjamin from his personal commentary on October 5th, both of them reacting to the very surprising and unexpected response of Professor Jordan Peterson to the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court of the United States. Boy, if there's a lesson to be learned here, always be careful what you say in public because you never know when your principles might be showing. And this applies not only to freshmen in college, but to those who teach them, as poor Dr. Jordan Peterson discovered when he finally arrived at that philosophical cliff of his own making and jumped right off. Saw that one coming, didn't we? Now let's see if, if, if it is the case that the Canada Research Chairs and the Concordia University Research Chairs really need to ramp up the help for women because they're so marginalized in universities, we could use this thing called data to try to decide whether uh, that's true. Well, it turns out that the US government has that data for us. So they looked at five races, all the five racial breakdowns, across four educational attainment, associate degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and doctorate. So there are 20 cells, five races, by four educational attainment. And in each of the cells, you could look at what's the ratio of male to females who obtained that degree. So if the, if the victimology narrative is true, 20 out of 20 cells would have men outnumbering women in those cells. What's the actual number? 20 out of 20 cells, women outnumber men. So, so, so take a moment and, and process that. Every single cell, every race, and every degree, women get more degrees than men across the whole possible landscape of data. That doesn't get you to question whether we should be having a gender equity program. Well, if we, if we have to have gender equity at this point, it should be the reverse one. Here is, what, here is the rampant sexism at Canadian medical schools women outnumber men now at almost all the schools. So that's why you know, we need to give them more perks. Now again, this is not questioning the fact that for many, many years, there was institutionalized sexism against women. No one's questioning that, and no, but no one needs to lecture me about that, since I come from the Middle East, where there continues to be massive, endemic, institutionalized sexism against women, and I speak out against it. But we need to be able to change the narrative when the data no longer supports the victimology narrative. But apparently, you're a Nazi bigot if you do that. Hi, everybody. This is Gatsad. So it's been a busy few days, and I was planning on sitting back and resting a bit. I also think I'm getting a bit of a cough. Uh, but then went on Twitter, and as usually happens, when you go on Twitter, you face the endless tsunami of lunacy. And in this case, the less than rational uh, source of information was coming from my buddy Jordan Peterson. Uh, it is difficult for me to not criticize someone's position simply because I like them, I like, I respect them, 
uh, and I only say this now as a preface because someone will write, but bruh, I thought you were friends. But bruh, I thought you had complicity with one another. Yes, there are many things that I appreciate about Jordan, and then there are some positions uh, that we disagree on. Here is one of them. So several people uh, that run in our circle uh, have been saying the perfectly incorrect things regarding the Brett Kavanaugh matter. And so at one point, Jordan tweets the following, if confirmed, Kavanaugh should step down. Nice. To which I responded, I must strongly disagree with my man Jordan Peterson on this one, step down on which grounds. It really amazes me, just at its face value, that he would take this position Step down because of what? He's been convicted of nothing. He's been shown to have done nothing wrong. There's not a single piece of uh, corroborated evidence that suggests that he's done anything wrong. But what is more incredible is that both Jordan and I, but luckily for me and maybe less so for him, we've been uh, the recipients of a lot of unwarranted attacks. Some of you might remember that when Jordan and I were speaking with Orrin Amate, at uh, an event uh, where we were accused of being, uh, you know, white uh, nationalists, uh, neo-Nazi anti-Semites. I'm from Lebanon and I'm Jewish. Uh, of course, Jordan has been accused of all sorts of erroneous things. So here's someone who's been accused of endless erroneous things that are unbelievably unfair to him that would make certainly me come out and, and support him. Many of you remember that Jordan had first reached out to me a few years ago when he was going through his gender pronoun stuff and I had invited him on my show. Why? Because I thought that he was taking a principled stand on this matter and no other academics were coming to his defense and so I was more than happy to defend him and then of course we then uh, you know, developed a friendship and you know, we appeared in some events together and so on and so forth. And since he's, of course, uh, become, uh, you know, very uh, prominent and that's wonderful. But with that prominence comes the responsibility to uh, be on the right side of issues. And I don't mean that uh, as a dogmatic thing, if whatever position I hold is right, whatever position you hold is wrong, not at all. Brett Kavanaugh has not been found to have done anything uh you know, incorrectly in his life, right? Uh, therefore, there's absolutely no reason for him to step down from anything. And again, to repeat that Jordan would say that this man should step down despite the fact that he's gone through 93 million FBI investigations, uh, you know, endless possible, you know, oversights of his every intricate minutiae of his life and nothing's been found against him I mean it's astonishing step down really and you're the person who's been attacked by so many people unfairly and you can't use theory of mind and put yourself in the mind of this do you remember Jordan when some guy had written unfair things about you and you became quite uh, well quite uh, volatile on Twitter and swore at him and threatened violence do you remember all that so the same person who responded in such a forceful manner because you were accused of, and with all due respect, as well known as you've become, 
your story, your reality, your platform is nothing compared to what Brett Kavanaugh is facing. So if you could become so unhinged when someone unfairly accuses you of being a racist and you know an alt-right guy and you react angrily, you can't now appreciate that he might also feel incredibly aggrieved and, and therefore you wouldn't be on his side defending him. Disappointing, my man. Still love you, but disappointing. Cheers. Peterson is so rich and famous now, and he associates with so many leftists that he's lost it, man. He's lost it. And he's really, and, and it's disappointing. And it's on such a level. Like some people on Instagram are like, oh, one, one disagreement in policy and you turn on someone. I, I was like, of course not. There's a fundamental issue of um, how you see the world. Like, I'm not blind. And this isn't a condemnation. I pray for him. They get Jordan Peterson to have millions of rabid fans and Sam Harris. Everyone believes he's this, this intellectual, scientific man of reason. And right, go against American due process. Ruin a man's life because of false allegations with no credibility to an accuser and no corroboration and no facts whatsoever. Undercutting the very nature of America. The fact the intellectual dark web just clicked into place with this bullshit is unbelievable. How do you guys feel about all this? My criticism of JBP is he said he ran for governor, he'd be the liberal party. I think JBP doesn't understand the cultural weight of the Kavanaugh thing. Now he understands, and this is, this is when I got more angry about Peterson. At first I was like, I love you buddy, but you got this one wrong, you're in the belly of the beast. Then he retweeted himself and made it more vague. He was like, well, it's complicated and it depends what you mean by rape. And I'm like, oh man, I would have respected it more if he was just wrong. I'd be like, ah, oh, silly Canadian. He knows what he's doing. He wants to maintain his audience and, and try to confuse people by being like, it depends on what you mean by justice. Go on Peterson's Twitter, check it out. And, and, and Ben Shapiro, man, he comes through in a clutch sometimes. He stepped up and was like, ah, I love you, Jordan, but this is total bullshit. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Now, I don't really have a lot to add to what we've already just heard, except for this indirect observation. Notice what we just heard, and from who and about who. There you have Gad Sad identifies as an atheist. Owen Benjamin identifies as Christian. Ben Shapiro identifies as Orthodox Jew, and yet they all agree on the fundamental moral and ethical principle involved. Imagine that. Interesting mosaic of philosophies and beliefs that all arrive at the same point, objectivity and justice. And I mention this in passing because we'll be hearing a bit more about this particular philosophical alignment from Ben Shapiro in a few moments. But something sinister about Peterson is beginning to emerge. A pattern that is not just isolated to this single event or to this incident concerning Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, if I wanted to be a bit sarcastic about it, I'm tempted to ask, has the politics of Jordan Peterson suddenly become transgendered or, or perhaps more accurately, trans-politicized? Did he move from his seemingly principled polarity on the right to the left? No. He's always been exactly where he is now. We've already had a bit of fun on past broadcasts 
deconstructing how Jordan Peterson is a bit of a train wreck when he talks about right and left, creating more confusion than clarity. He sees the right and left as some kind of balancing forces related to the disenfranchised on one side versus the rigidity of some form of conservatism or something on the right, not related directly to ideology or ideas, you know, where in fact one should never balance good with evil. Yet that's what he's doing because that's what left and right fundamentally represent. Peterson believes there's a middle of the road or center position between left and right and that there should be some kind of balance there. So, in adopting his principled stance, he always takes the middle of the road the centrist position that begins to invalidate his principles. Remember, as established on past shows, there is no center, and anyone who thinks he's on it is drifting leftward, if not already there. To wit, Peterson also recently analyzed a U.S. Democratic Party ad, complimenting it for appealing to more average people and expressing less extreme political values. And he totally swallowed every drop of their lying Kool-Aid as if he was oblivious to that party's history, nature, and intentions, which is to move America to the extreme left. Always has been. Always will be. There's nothing new polarized here. He thinks they're moving to some kind of center. No, they're sitting on the left. Never will move there. They've been there since day one. The party of racism and Ku Klux Klan and all that stuff, remember? That didn't go away. Peterson's always avoiding any efforts to polarize his position, which is strange because the issues that concern him are already polarized. And this applies to his metaphysics as well. We talked about it. His meanderings about left and right are not so much different sounding than his rambling and all-inclusive of anything definition of God. And he wants to be on the middle of the road on that issue too. Imagine that. I mean... I behave as if God existed. How, how non-committal to a black and white yes or no, left or right question can you be? Centrist? No. Sinister. Now, let's move on to my next exhibit of someone I'm very pleased to see is doing well in terms of reaching a wide audience online. Someone I truly consider to be a principled intellect. He's awesome. His name is Ben Shapiro, and here he is from a Q&A session at the University of Connecticut earlier this year, January 24th, to be precise. Now, just as a reminder, we want to have people who disagree with Ben. You guys can come skip the line. Yeah, just raise your hand. Hi. Um, no cheating. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I disagree with you. Perfect. Um, uh, I, I personally, I'm a progressive. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just wondering with our current political atmosphere right now, why is it that we have strayed away from not not just right or or left or just general people in politics stray away from facts and try to twist around the truth? For example, like with at Fox, MSNBC, all these big corporate news programs, they tend to have an agenda. Why is it that it's so hard to get facts out to people? I mean, I think it's always been hard to get facts out to people is the truth. I think the narrative has always been more prominent in our mind. What we want to believe, and you tend to look for excuses to believe it. I think that in the era of mass media, where every taste can be catered to, you see that a lot more often, obviously. And so if you think like Rachel Maddow, you're likely to watch Rachel Maddow. If you think like Sean Hannity, you're likely to watch Sean Hannity and have all your biases confirmed. That's one of the reasons why I hope that I'm at least attempting to present facts, even some facts that disagree with my position, and then explain why 
you know, those are wrong. And if you present a fact to me that disagrees with my position, I'll acknowledge the fact. I'll either say that it strays from my framework or not. I mean, it's something that I, I strive to do. Maybe I fail, but it's something I'm trying to do. Uh, I think that the reason that people have strayed away from fact and, and moved into subjectivity is because there's something comforting about subjectivity. You can never be wrong. The thing about facts is that somebody can prove you wrong. It's uncomfortable to be out there on the limb all the time waiting for somebody to saw it off behind you. Right? Doing what I do, uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I love what I do for a living. But I will also say that there is a constant feeling of, am I right? And when somebody says you're wrong, you act, if you're a good person, you think, well, maybe I am wrong. Let me examine that more. And it's uncomfortable to feel like you're wrong. Every time you feel like you're wrong, it means that you have to examine your presuppositions and think about whether you're, you're, you're saying the right things. And so I take criticism seriously, or at least I try to. Um, and I think that, that that's, that's a hard thing to do, and especially in an era where we have been told that there's a virtue to being offended, that you being offended is a substitute for you learning something, that if you don't like what I'm saying, then you being offended is enough for you to just dismiss it out of hand. You don't have to go home and do any research. Uh, that's made things very convenient for people, particularly in, in everybody's into virtue signaling now. Right? It's very easy. That this is why you see these kind of tsunamis that start where people will call Steven Pinker a racist. Right? I mean, Steven Pinker is a lefty. Steven Pinker only says that there are differences in biology between men and women, for example. Or he'll say things like I've said, that there are different crime rates in particular communities. And then he'll get blasted for this as supposedly upholding alt-right views. That's because people want to believe that those facts are, are not right, and so they will blame his motivation and then attribute to him a motivation that he doesn't like. So if we can refrain from questioning each other's motivation and go to maybe where we, we go wrong in logic, then maybe we can have a conversation. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why, even though I'm an Orthodox Jew, I never cite the Bible in defense of my positions, because I know that a lot of people don't believe in the Bible, so we can't have a conversation on common ground here. Good evening, Mr. Shapiro. My name is Josh. It's a pleasure to meet you. So political polarization in America is an increasing problem as the years go by. My questions kind of tie into each other. The first one is, what do you believe is the root cause of this problem? And the second is, how would you go about fixing that? Ah, great question. So um, I think that the root cause of the political divisions in American society and Western civilization more broadly is that there is a telos-shaped hole in our heart that is now being filled with tribalism. So that's a very complicated way of saying that telos means purpose for those who are not philosophy students. Uh, in the Aristotelian and Platonic view, uh, the way that you derive your value as a human being is by acting in accordance with na nature's law, essentially. That if you look at the universe, what you see is that man is a creature of reason. If you act in accordance with that reason, then you are acting in accordance with your purpose. And there are a whole set of virtues that you have to cultivate in order to act best in accordance with your identity as a reasoned person. Uh, and Aristotle recommends these. Uh, Judeo-Christian values seem to mirror these pretty strongly, which is why for, for basically the entire medieval scholastic period, there was a great identity between Aristotelian thought uh, and Judeo-Christian values. And that carried forward all the way through most of the Enlightenment, actually, uh, despite some, some pushback to the contrary. The American founding was based on this, this essential idea that every right has a corresponding duty, that you, are, that you have a purpose in the universe that is laid forth on a religious level by your religious community, by the Bible, um, and on a, on a reasonable level by a universe that requires certain things of you under natural law, right? This is what the founders talked about when they talked about natural law. I think all of that's been lost. I think it's been systematically undermined by 200 years of philosophy that says that God does not exist, the Bible is a fraud, uh, that you cannot get to 
ought from is, right? The, the David Hume distinction that just because the universe is a certain way doesn't mean that's how you, you ought to be. Uh, and once you do that, and you say to everybody, make your own purpose, it turns out people are not good at making their own purpose. When people try to make their own purpose, they end up usually at hedonism uh, or at self-interest uh, or at the triumph of the will or at the idea that if we shape together as a community, then we can create utopia together. And you've seen all of those things happen in the 20th century. I think now the most common, the most common area in which people are finding fulfillment is tribalism. Because our sense of community has broken down so much because religious communities have declined, people don't see each other as neighbors or friends anymore. We look at the United States and we don't see a set of common principles that we all hold to. I mean, on a, like, this is a perfect example tonight. We need probably dozens of security members just for me to talk. We don't have the same set of values anymore. Because of that, people are filling that hole with tribalism. They're filling that hole with, okay, there's a bunch of people who look like me, and therefore those are my people, and I'll stand up for their interests. And you see this, I think, uh, to a certain extent in the Black Lives Matter movement. I think you certainly see it in the alt-right movement. Uh, and all of these tribal movements are deeply disturbing and, uh, and cut against the grain of Western thought, which has been moving toward individuality and universalism simultaneously for the past several thousand years, and is now moving, I think, in a, in a completely sideways direction, thanks to the undermining of, of these key concepts. Purpose, individual purpose, the capacity of individuals to take control of their lives, communal purpose, and the capacity of a community to, to set boundaries uh, around individual behavior uh, so far it doesn't hurt other people and also to, to ensure people's freedom. Kind of hard to argue with that, isn't it? I only heard that exchange for the first time a few days ago, and I was struck by Shapiro's observation that practically summarized the entire content of our last two broadcasts. It's when he's talked about how in the Aristotelian and Platonic view, the way you derive your values is by acting in accordance with nature's laws. If you look at the universe, you see that man is a creature of reason. If you act in accordance with reason, then you are acting in accordance with your purpose. This leads to a whole set of virtues to cultivate as a reasoned person. Shapiro is also quite correct in observing that facts and truth have always been difficult to get out. The self-identified progressive who lamented all of the lies and misinformation and polarization in the media was largely criticizing progressivism itself. Remember, all facts are true, but facts alone are not truth. Facts are often used to destroy the truth because all truths depend upon a narrative the story that explains the facts in a meaningful and truthful way. Place the facts in a context where they do not belong, and the truth suddenly disappears, doesn't it? And finally, our good old friend, polarization, which also is nothing new, but is permanent and eternal. The polarization that everyone fears has always been with us, but has now become unavoidably visible. And we have found ourselves all polarized on the left pole, where intolerance, collectivism, and tribalism all reside. They're all there. The left is where all conflict and horror occurs. There is no tribalistic conflict on the right or with the right, since the right is based on individualism and freedom. Polar opposites. And the good will always be polarized on the one side, while the evil will be polarized on the other. And I'm in favor of polarization, the process of identifying the good from the evil which is what everybody wants to avoid, right? Well, not everybody, just those on the side of evil. Whether out of ignorance or out of intent, makes no difference. The reason we found ourselves polarized and stuck on the left pole today like a piece of metal held by a magnet is because of all the appeasers and avoiders of polarization who attempted to sit in this non-existent center and in so doing, 
unleashed the evil of the left upon the rest of us by compromise. I'm happy to report that our views are as polarized as possible, and we think that's the right way to be. We're just right, and that's exactly the pole to which our views are anchored. So, join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction, and until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Oh, been lots of topical stuff in the news, hasn't there?